If you could grab your Bibles and take a seat, that'd be terrific. So in Isaiah chapter 39 today, and after reading through the passage, it just came to mind that there's this pattern in the Bible where defeat can follow a miraculous victory. Like you can have amazing deliverance from God, but then on the heels of that victory, fall and have a defeat. Like Joshua and the Israelites, for instance, they they obey God and they see him destroy Jericho before them. They have that hiccup and um, before AI and they fall in defeat and many casualties. Not one casualty with Jericho, but many casualties with the city of AI. And David, he's valiant before Goliath. He's like, you know, God help me to defeat a lion and a bear. He'll help me with this Philistine. He defeats him, beheads him, but then when Saul is chasing him down, he takes Goliath's sword and he flees to the Philistines for shelter. So it's like on the heels of a, of a God doing an amazing thing. Elijah, the prophets of Baal, he's bold to challenge them and he says, let's, let's have a showdown. Who's the real God in Israel? God answers with fire from heaven. God answers Elijah's prayer to send rain after a long drought. And yet, the threats of Queen Jezebel was enough to to just rid him of all hope and trust at that moment. How often did God help his people when they cried out to him, yet after their deliverance, they were filled with pride? And that's what we're going to read about today with Hezekiah. All this has been written for our learning, their, their, their tendencies that we read of people in the Bible. That's our tendency, too as much as we may not want to admit it. That is our condition. So that monumental victory today, it makes us no less vulnerable to defeat tomorrow. We have to rely upon the Lord and trust him to walk in victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for your word. Thank you for these truths. And we pray that you would speak through your scriptures today. You would speak through me. It would not be anything that I bring to the table, but you, that we hear your voice and that we respond to you today. Lord, speak to me, speak to us all, that we might hear your word and obey. You are an awesome God. We fear you, we glorify you, and we ask you to direct and guide this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We followed the story of Jerusalem's deliverance from the the Assyrian siege, 185,000 Warriors killed in a night by the angel of the Lord. Hezekiah's miraculous healing. He had been sick and he was going to die and God healed him and extended his life, gave him 15 more years. He saw the sign of the sundial going back 10 degrees as proof that God would answer his word. And you would think that if you saw these miracles, you saw your enemies destroyed, if you were miraculously healed, that would give you enough like motivation to keep following God close forever. But we see that that's not the case. If we, if we, we think, well, if I just saw that miracle, or if I had this experience, then, then I'd go on with God. Then I'd really trust him more. My faith would be increased. And we have these, this idea that we're not going to forget God if he'll do something for us. But the fact is, we do forget God more than we know. And the relation, our relationship with God can stop being the priority it should be. We can be a person filled with the Spirit who's not always content to be led by the Spirit. 
And it's good for us to take a step back from our lives and to examine ourselves and say, am I truly trusting God? Am I seeking God? Do I have a hunger and a thirst to hear for God? Do I, do I need him today? Because when we come to a point where we, we feel a bit self-confident or assured in ourselves or we look at our success, then we realize that, well, the thing is we won't realize that we're blind to our desperate need for God. As we will later on partake of the bread and the cup, remembering Christ's sacrifice, we need to look again at the blood and see the broken body of Jesus and say, am I living worthy of this? Am I living worthy of this sacrifice? Have I responded to that love that he has shown me? And if our focus is on our success or our failure, or our inability, we stop short of God's transforming power, the power that he has given us through Christ. So we'll be in Isaiah 39, starting in verse 1. It says, At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. God delivered King Hezekiah from that, that disease, that sickness. The Assyrians had been destroyed by the angel of the Lord. And these emissaries from Babylon come with a, with a gift, with some letters to wish him well. Now, Merodach Baladan, that means worshiper of Bel or Baal. So that should have been like a, a bit of a red flag, just based upon his name and what he's about. It says that in verse 2, Hezekiah was pleased with receiving this, these ambassadors and these letters. And it's interesting that the two times he received letters from the king of Assyria, he went to God and he prayed and he spread these letters out before the Lord. But when in a time of peace and a time of prosperity, he gets letters and he's being recognized, he doesn't go to God. He doesn't pray. He's happy. He's happy to be recognized. So on the heels of God destroying his enemies who threaten him with violence, Hezekiah, he welcomes a different enemy right into his kingdom, showing him everything in his dominion all at once. He never perceived the threat. He saw the threat when they were outside the gates and saying, we're going to kill you. But he didn't see the threat when they came being all friendly with gifts and because they lived a long distance away, as we'll see. It says there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And if you could turn to 2 Chronicles 32, starting in verse 30, we read that one of the consequences after his healing was that Hezekiah became proud. He did not behave in the way that was pleasing to God in this case with these ambassadors. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 30. It says, this same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him 
that he might know all that was in his heart. The passage says that God caused Hezekiah to prosper in everything he did, except in the matter with these ambassadors. And why did they come? The scriptures say, to inquire about the wonder done in the land. See, Babylon was at war with Assyria as well. And they wanted to know what happened. They were coming against you, massive army, no one had withstood them, and they were all destroyed. How did that happen? What's going on? Now, instead of giving glory to God as his greatest treasure, Hezekiah just takes the time to show off all the stuff of the kingdom. He's shown the gold and the silver and his building projects, and they're pretty awesome. I, I have walked through Hezekiah's tunnel a few times, and it's carved through solid rock still to this day with, with water, very cold, flowing through. That goes about to the waist. They started working and connected in the middle. I forget how long it is, but it was quite a feat. And so he took them and he showed them all his building projects and and the, the spices and the ointments. Like, that's not something I do when someone comes to me. I'm like, check out this ointment. It's pretty cool. But that's what he does. But he, So he's, he's like glorifying his ointment and his stuff over the living God. There's no reference of him talking about God at all. He's talking about his stuff and his kingdom and his dominion. And it's strangely silent about God, who did the wonder. He is the wonder of the land, and yet we don't hear about him at all. So he passes the test of faith when the city is surrounded and his health was failing, but the friendly delegation, it exposed his pride. And God withdrew his hand so he could see what was in his own heart. He found humility easy when he was helpless, but when lifted up with pride, through a season of ease and rest. And that teaches us that not all tests come from God in the hard times. Sometimes we think that because we're having a hard time, God must be testing us or something. Well, gee, he could be. But remember, there can also be a test during the good times, the times where everything seems to be going smoothly and things are, are actually shaping up nicely when we're receiving recognition and gifts, and we think it's a blessing, but really it's a test. For God's testing you. He's seeing what's in your heart when things are hard or when things seem to be going well. Are you still going to seek God? Are you still going to spread those letters out before God and say, God, how do I respond to this delegation, whether they have a sword in their hand or a present for me? We need, to, we need the presence and power from God as much in the difficult times as when things seem to be going well. Back to Isaiah 39, verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. When Hezekiah had prayed to God, God sent an answer to his prayer through Isaiah. And here he sends a response to his prayerlessness and his pride. He sends a message anyway. 
And he asks him two pointed questions. He says, what did these men say to you and where are they from? He doesn't answer the first question. But he assured them, oh, they come from a far country, implying that there's really no risk for me to show them anything. It, we're okay. Because they, they're from a long distance away. We're not, I don't feel threatened by them. And the fact he, he saw them as no threat to the kingdom, it shows that his pride had blinded him to the truth. It reminds me of when God defeated Jericho and Ai and, and told Joshua, don't make an agreement with people of the land. You're to drive them out. And the people from Gibeon who were lived very near, they said, wow, we've got to do something to save ourselves from this, uh, this God and these, these Hebrews that are coming. And so they made themselves look like they had taken a very long journey. They had old shoes and ripped clothes and, and torn wineskins and, and moldy bread and said, oh, we've come a long way. We, we just want to be your servants. Please, let us enter into a treaty with you. And, and instead of seeking God's wisdom like he did with Jericho, he just looks at their old bread and their torn wineskins and their tattered clothes and says, all right, they're from a long way away. We can uh, enter into agreement with you. He hastily makes this agreement, but he never sought the Lord. Big walls, Jericho, seeks God. Humble delegation, friendly, doesn't seek God. And there were consequences of that that extended throughout their history. And pride shouts, I know what to do. I know better than God. And it doesn't seek God. Pride always comes before a fall. And even as Joshua lived to rue the day he made a treaty with them, this nation would experience grave consequences by this seemingly insignificant visit by the Babylonians. He says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, what your fathers have accumulated until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. The accumulation of stuff, it's associated with great peril for our souls because there's a tendency in all people to adopt a false sense of security that connects acquiring and prosperity with security, protection, and that begins to become a cheap substitute for God. Pride due to prosperity, it leads to spiritual blindness. We, we see this connection in Revelation 3.17. Jesus says, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. It's quite a contrast. The people think in their pride, hey, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I don't need anything. Doing good. But God said, I look at you and I see that you're naked and poor and blind and miserable. You don't see it, but I do. We're exhorted in Psalm 62.10, Do not trust in oppression nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God sometimes will give us wealth, prosperity, that the world would, would look and go, right on, that's good. However, it says, don't set your heart on it. Don't get it entangled with your affections. And covetousness, we're also warned against that in Luke twelve fifteen. Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. And when we start to measure our life or our worth 
with the things we have or the things that we don't have. It is a snare. And we can be corrupted by relying upon money or things or the comforts of our life instead of seeking God. The things that we possess can soon possess us and have a control over us, and we won't see it because that's something that pride does is it blinds us to the truth. Praise God in his word, he tells us the truth. He lays it all out clearly for us, and we can choose to believe him and trust him or go our own way, and he'll let us take it on the chin from time to time. But he's still faithful as he would be to Hezekiah. Isaiah 39, verse 7, he continues, And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. In addition to everything being taken, you know, the gold, the silver, something much more precious would be taken. The people of Judah. Sons of Hezekiah, they would become eunuchs in the king's palace. I find Hezekiah's response a bit baffling because if someone said to that to me about my future children that they would all be eunuchs in a foreign land, I don't know, I'd say, right on. Sounds great. I don't think that's what Hezekiah is saying exactly. But He's correct in saying that the word the Lord speaks is good. Whether we like it or want to hear it, the things God says is good because God is good. That is a constant. The thing that concerns me about Hezekiah, and by extension me and others who fear God, is when we receive bad news as a response or a a consequence of our sin, we don't immediately repent. And he responds with this kind of, well, at least it'll be good in my days. Something that we could call at least thinking. And pride makes us settle for at least thinking all the time. We go, well, at least we can have fun today. At least this and that. Let's not be content for God's peace and truth to end with us. Let's see it continue for future generations that we could glorify and praise God together. Now, it's good for us to be resigned to the will of God in a sense. To to be able to say that what God has spoken is good. But remember the Ninevites when they heard that yet 40 days and they will be destroyed. What did they do? They humbled themselves before God. We don't read of any humility here in Hezekiah. He's just looking at, okay, well, at least it's good for me. The Ninevites humbled themselves before God. They were not God's people, yet they put on sackcloth. They fasted, both man and beast. God heard their cries, and he gave them 150 years respite from his destruction. So if God will hear the Ninevites when they repent, won't he hear his own people? Couldn't he have interceded on behalf of those future generations and humbled himself before God? We read about the same thing with Eli. Eli had been warned about the wickedness of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and said, why haven't you stopped them? Why haven't you stopped them from polluting my temple and my sanctuary and causing people to kick at my offerings, to despise sacrifice? And when Samuel told Eli the things that would happen to his house, the grave consequences for their sin, he said, 
It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That's resignation, but it's not necessarily humility. And so when we, how much better to be broken for our sin and to say, Lord, I have done wrong. Forgive me. Don't hold my house accountable for my errors. So that's the heart that God tested him. Hezekiah didn't pass this test. So we come to the end of chapter 39. It actually ends the first section of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters, it focuses largely on God's judgment. The second section, it focuses on God's deliverance and redemption. I like the quote of Spurgeon that he said, the sharp needle of the law makes way for the silken thread of grace. That there's that law required to to pierce us so that God's grace can flow into our lives. And it's the same thing with God's judgment. We need to recognize we are under judgment, deserving of judgment, so that we can receive his consolation and his comfort. There's that. So you need you need it as long as it's been. You needed those 39 chapters to begin reading what we're going to start reading. Like there was this soul work that had to happen, this strong judgment issued to God's people before they could really lay hold of what he's saying, chapters 40 and onward. It's our hopelessness that prompts us to seek God's help. Otherwise, we think ourselves sufficient in ourselves. Judah was still going to go into captivity. There was still going to be consequences for their sin. But God has comfort for them, and he has comfort for you too. So let's jump in. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. How amazing that on the heels of judgment, God would emphasize the need of his people to receive comfort. They've been disciplined for their sins. They had been corrected. But he's like, but be comforted now. Even before they go into captivity in Babylon, he's saying, be comforted. It would be a strange thing to submit to God's chastening, but to refuse his comfort. And I wonder, do we ever do that? Do we ever stoically embrace hard times as a consequence for our sin, yet refuse to receive comfort that God gives? I think we can. God told the prophet to cry to God's people, no longer to warn them about coming judgment, but crying out to them so they would receive God's comfort. For whatever reason, it seems easier for us to receive God's judgment, in a sense, than receive his comfort. And I think we need to take this exhortation to heart. Your iniquity has been pardoned. If you are born again, If you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, your iniquity is pardoned. If you're in sin, repent and and stop sinning through his strength. But if you have been washed, you have been cleansed, your iniquity has been washed away. You don't need to condemn yourself anymore. Can you imagine a man who's received a full pardon? He's already been to prison, but he's already been pardoned now. He's, He's out. And yet he still mourns his crimes when they're washed and like they never happened. 
shouldn't he be celebrating his freedom? Shouldn't he be thanking the one who, who looked favorably upon him and said, your crimes are now expunged. You've received a full pardon. There's no memory of the things that you've done. And yet he's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I did the wrong thing. I just hate myself for what I've done. But you've been pardoned. Like, let that sink in, that God has pardoned us. God pardoned his people. And he says, because I pardoned you, receive the comfort that I have for you. Receive it. If you could turn to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. God has comfort for all people in all circumstances. And he actually has a, an amazing plan to use you to help comfort others, no matter what they're going through. You don't have to have struggled in, in a particular area or have a particular circumstance to be able to comfort with God's comfort. Because we see that he is the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us not just for us, but so we can comfort others. In any situation, in any trouble. God allowed tribulation to test his people. He allowed prosperity to test his people. And when it says that Israel received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, the word double in Hebrew, it means duplicate. So we don't do it very much anymore, but like carbon paper, when you write on it, it transfers through to many layers. The idea is every sin that they had committed, it had been pardoned, each one. There had been an associated judgment with each particular sin, like a duplicate, like you did this, so this is a consequence. Yet there was also consolation in God. So he had a full pardon for each sin. He, he had recorded everything that they had done, but he had also given them a full pardon for everything. And so he says, receive the comfort. Cry out to the people. Receive God's comfort. Verse 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If this passage sounds familiar, it may be because all the gospel writers, all four of them, apply verse 3 specifically to John the Baptist, one who was sent as a messenger, a forerunner for Jesus Christ to prepare his way. It's interesting what time in history this was written. That it was written at a time, uh, the promise of a Messiah, the promise of the forerunner of a Messiah, even before the Messiah comes, even before the people go into captivity in Babylon. He's like, look forward to the hope I have for you, even though bonds await you. God had not forgotten them. They were to prepare their hearts to hear from God. We're wise to do the same. The soil, it's got to be prepared by the spade and the plow, the irrigation, 
to prepare it for planting. And even so, our hearts, we need to prepare them to plow up our fallow ground, to, to examine ourselves and see that we are receptive and ready to receive what God has so we can be fruitful. It says there that every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low, crooked places made straight, rough places smooth. If you've ever driven up the M1, I'm always amazed with the great channels that they've cut through the stone. I mean, sheer cliffs on either side. Now, if they hadn't done that, you imagine it would be really up and down or roundabout. The whole point of building a highway is a a clear line and efficiency to your next path. If you're going up and down with that kind of steepness, uh, the big trucks would be just blocking everything. And so it's like cut... rise up the valleys, bring down the mountains, just cut straight through, make a highway, make a clear passage, clearly delineated, quick. That's the idea. Sometimes we can't effectively receive the word of God because we have these these boulders of unbelief that block the path. And And as true as it was in Israel that they needed to prepare their hearts for the Messiah, so we need to prepare our hearts to receive God's word and his truth. And just say, are there obstacles of unbelief in my heart? Is there a crooked place that needs to be made straight in my life? Are there rough spots of hypocrisy that need to be flattened? The low places raised up? And allow God to search our hearts, to fill those potholes of neglect in our relationship with God. Let's start ordering our lives in a way that pleases him, where we, we say, you know, I, there is something that's, that's out of place. I want to make that in line with God. Every mountain of unbelief can be cast into the sea through faith in Jesus. It would have been easy for them to believe that the whole world would see the glory of the Lord in Israel during Solomon or David's heyday. But this, that's not when they were given this word. It was right when they were going to, well, it was before they went into captivity. So they have this promise of captivity and judgment. And yet God's giving them this view beyond it. And he's saying, God's glory is going to be revealed. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. Can you imagine having this word spoken to you when you know the temple has been raised to the ground, when the gates are burnt with fire, when the walls have been torn down, when the enemies have come in like a flood, when all of God's people have been taken out and brought into captivity, and and this is the verse that you're given? The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see see it together. Can you imagine having your sons killed before your eyes, having your eyes put out, and being shackled and taken away to Babylon? Well, King King Zedekiah did not have to imagine. That's exactly what happened to him. He saw that, and yet this word was for him. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. It would have been very hard to believe it given those circumstances, right? Only if you don't believe God or his scriptures. Because what he said will come to pass. 
Sometimes we make the timing a really big issue. We almost make the timing of God doing something way more important than it should be. We live in the confines of time. But I ask you, what's more important for you today, God's promises or your diary, your schedule? Where you say, God, you need to act now. You need to do this now. And think of the time that was going to have to elapse before the fulfillment. And it's a fulfillment ultimately we're still waiting on. Though Jesus has come, he is going to come back and the whole world will see his glory. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. So don't let the specter of time blind you to God's power or ability. You may have suffered with something for quite a while. It doesn't mean that God is powerless to help you. You may think there needs to be a quick resolution. Is God in a hurry? He is not preoccupied. He's not worried because he has all power. Verse 6, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It's almost like the urgency of what he's supposed to say was greater than the message where he says, cry. Well, what do I cry? The answer came, all flesh is grass. All loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. Now, if it stopped there, that would be pretty depressing, wouldn't you say? You're like, great. Thanks, I really needed that. Yeah, flowers fade, grass dries up and is no more. Like, what's the point? He gets to it. The contrast is being made between people who live on earth one day and are gone the next and the word of God, which endures forever. Someday that's going to be me. I'm going to be here one day, and then the next day I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be, I'm going to be dead. All, my body will have gone the way of the earth. My spirit will be with the living God. But I'm here one day, and I'm gone the next. Those flowers, when you buy them from the florist, they look really nice, and they smell good. But give them a few days. They'll start to be a little stinky and wilting and... The bugs will come, and they, they get a little daggy, let's say. Now, Hezekiah, he knew he only had 15 years of life left. He was positive about it. He was happy to have 15 years. That's a novelty, that he would actually know how much time he has left. You don't know how much time you have left. I don't know how much time I have left. But the fact is, none of us are going to be here forever. This is not our eternal home. We will pass away, but God's words will never pass away. See, if God's word didn't endure forever, the promises of eternal life would have no meaning whatsoever. But because God's word is eternal and it will never fail, then it is a sure anchor for our souls. It is a foundation for our faith. Some people may scorn it. People may disapprove of it. Sometimes it may take forever to be fulfilled. We're, we're like the little car sick kids in the back complaining that the, the trip is taking a bit long. But God will see that we arrive at our destination right on time and he will accomplish it. 
Now, this is a really cool thing. You might not think so, but grass and flowers, though the grass dies and the flowers fade, they play a huge role in our lives. Without grass, there would be a huge drop in flocks and herds that would affect wool and meat production. The loss of turf, like from rabbits, it has caused huge problems with erosion, good soil just draining away into the sea. The world would lose a huge percentage of green. You think of flowers, they support honey production, but most importantly, it's the, the reproductive capacity of the plant is in the flower. Without the flower, there's no fruit. Without the flower, there's no additional plants. So all the plants would die out if there were no flowers. A very significant thing. Now God has chosen to use temporary Beautiful things like grass and flowers to make life possible on this planet. And he's also chosen people who are here one day and gone the next to do remarkable wonders for his kingdom and his glory. He has chosen to use us, though we're here only a short time, to make a difference for eternity in the lives of other people for his glory to accomplish his purposes, to share the gospel, to demonstrate his love, to be the body, to beautify and make attractive the kingdom of God. You think of those lawns, just immaculate. You're like, oh, it's just beautiful. Or, or flowers that bloom. They're lovely. They bring comfort to those who are hurting. They show that you care when you give someone flowers. And you think about, that's the role that we can play. Yes, we're like the grass and the flowers that fade, but God has a purpose and a, and a life-giving reason behind us being here so that he can be glorified. That we're here not just for ourselves, but for him and for others. To think, you can promote God's glory. You can do things of eternal significance. Not because you're wonderful, but because God is wonderful and he wants to use you. He has a purpose for your life. Verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand hand and his arm shall rule for him behold his reward is with him and his work before him he will feed his flock like a shepherd he will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young the gospel is good news great tidings that god's given us for all people of his grace his love his salvation And God says, you who have good tidings, lift up your voice. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed to speak these good things from God. Say to the people of Jerusalem and beyond, behold your God. Look at God. Consider all he's done. Consider who he is. After Jesus was betrayed and scourged, John 19.5 tells us that Jesus was presented by Pontius Pilate, and it says, Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Here he is. Look at him. 
And I like it's not behold a man, but it's the man. The man who was also God. And when he was crucified, over his head was written in three languages, the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. He suffered on the cross that day as the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And evil seemed to have won when he breathed out his last. Yet three days later, he rose in a demonstration of glory and power. And he's ascended to heaven, though not returned as yet. With eyes of faith, we can behold him in his glory. A glory that will remain undimmed for eternity. He was crucified in weakness. He was raised in power. He came as a suffering servant but he will someday return as a conquering king. And he will come with a strong hand, and the scriptures say, rule with a rod of iron. None will stand before him. It says in Revelation twenty-two twelve, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. So Jesus is coming, and he has a reward with him. The manner of Christ's coming for you will depend upon your relationship with him. Because he's coming to judge the nations who oppose him. And he's coming to save and to comfort those who love him and are loyal to him. It says, look at this, the, the treatment. It's almost a dichotomy, right? On one hand, he's, he's powerful and mighty and strong to deliver and save, to destroy the wicked from the world. But it says of his flock, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. So feeding his flock, gathering the lambs, carrying them, gently leading them. Aren't those great descriptions of how God deals with us? How he has gathered us together, how he carries us, how he feeds us and supplies all our needs, and how he gently leads us through this life. He is marvelous. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's very easy for us to be swayed by the trials and difficulties of this life. To stop trusting God, even if we've received Christ as our Savior. And for our problems to cause us to wallow in hopelessness, like we feel there's there's no hope for me. There's nothing I can do. And we, we just look at our own limitations or our own past failures. We may believe that Jesus has come to earth, that he died on the cross and that he was raised in glory, but we lack the faith to believe that God has the ability to help, change, or deliver us personally from the problems that we face. May we repent of this sin. And it's in times of prosperity and ease that we can be the most vulnerable to pride and flattery. And it could be that God has, in your life, allowed you to go through a a prolonged siege where you just feel under attack all the time. Or perhaps he's allowed you a season of rest and comfort and a time of plenty as a test so you can see what's in your own heart. And to say, in this time where I do have things that seem to be working out, do I seek God like I used to? 
Do I still rely upon him? Do I still have a hunger and a thirst to hear from God and to know his will in my life? Jesus is coming suddenly and his reward is with him. He says, when I come, will I find faith on the earth? Will I find people who actually believe me? Even when the world seems to be going crazy, are there people who believe in my power to heal people and to transform lives and to save? Will he find faith in you when he comes? We can be so fixed on the concept that we're in a spiritual battle that we forget that Jesus has won. We need to remember that we are in a spiritual battle. But if we're on Christ's side, we're not on the losing side. We have already won. Despite the difficulties and the struggles we may face that God has sovereignly chose to allow. Now we are going to receive communion together. And when we receive of the bread and of the cup, the bread that symbolizes the broken body of Jesus, the cup that symbolizes the new covenant in his blood, we're partaking of a living hope. Because it's through the lens of the resurrection. It's not just that he died, but that he rose again and he's alive. We've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We are now new creations, redeemed from the curse of sin. We've been raised with Christ in power unto eternal life. And so today... I exhort you, behold your God. Behold the man. Look upon Jesus and consider who he is and what he has done. And I encourage you not to wallow in guilt or self-condemnation any longer and receive the comfort that comes from God. Receive that comfort. Do you need to be comforted today? Receive his comfort. Our lives are like the grass, that grass and the flowers that fade. The word of the Lord will endure forever. We have been redeemed for eternity. And if you want, you can turn to Jude, verse 24 and 25. We know what God is able to do, and it says what he will do. Jude 1, 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. When we receive communion, the Lord's Supper together, it's much more than a memorial of his death, but it's a proclamation of his life, that he has been raised. It's a testimony of our new life in him, that we have been born again. We have been washed. We, are, we have been made new. And we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. And that's something we can rejoice in together, regardless of our circumstances. And this week, as I was reading... Uh, in my morning quiet times, there was one verse that in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians that stood out to me. 
It says, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Let a man examine himself. There's something about when we come before God, the living God, with our own conscience, and we sit quietly before him, and we say, God, examine me, and help me to examine myself. Show me if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in your way. That There's something there that God can do things there that, that I can't do, that no one else can do for you. And so I encourage you to take some time now to examine yourself, as the word says, to look to look with God's direction upon your life. Are there crooked things that need to be made straight? Are there valleys that need to be lifted up? Are there mountains of unbelief that need to be thrown into the sea? Allow him to search you, to show you the things that are in your heart. So what we will do is I'd like to invite the team up to lead us in a song. And as they're singing, please come forward and take of the cup and of the bread and head back to your seat. And then I'll say a prayer and just lead us in a prayer together. And so this is for anyone who is a Christian. It's to show that you are proclaiming your belief in Jesus Christ, that you have been born again that his blood has cleansed you from sin, that he, you believe in his death and his resurrection. And we get to proclaim his death until he comes because he's coming and his reward is with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God. There is no other. And we want to behold you today. As Jesus stood there with the robe and the cruel mocking crowd, with the blood that flowed down, Lord, we realize that it was for our transgressions that he was crucified and that he didn't deserve that at all. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world, that through his death he could demonstrate your love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us, you would examine us, and we would examine ourselves faithfully today before you, that you would minister and show us how we can walk in the way that fully pleases you. Lord, if there's areas of sin in our life and there is none who have not sinned, we ask, Lord, that you would reveal it to us so we might repent and we might follow after you. We might choose to, to return to our first love and do the first works. Lord, we're sorry when we're lifted up with pride and we're blind to our faults and we don't realize how much we forget about you. And we, we limit you through our unbelief, and we don't believe that you can actually help us. So I pray, Lord, you would reverse all that today, that you would do mighty works in our lives, that you would break our hearts, you would fill us with your joy, we would receive your comfort, and not just condemnation. Thank you again for your, your promises and for your goodness, that Jesus is the living bread that comes down from heaven and his blood washes us from all sin. In Jesus' name, amen.